Carmen. This is your mother-in-law? Your mom. Your mom. God bless you for asking. For me, my brother Tom, he's having prostate surgery on Thursday, having it removed. And he's in good spirits about it, so I spent Saturday with him. If he was related to you, I wouldn't expect anything less. Anybody else? Francesca, I was glad to see you. There was an empty spot over there until... Anybody else? God, I feel sort of naked tonight. There's... That's good. Great. 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 Let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm, I think I did this before and I'd like to do it again. I, I think I told you that this is the prayer that I usually say um, each morning for myself and Suzanne, but I'd like to say it to this group so it'll be part of the prayer. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the, um, the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself in the Eucharist in masses for those who attended today for your presence throughout the day. Um, I believe this so strongly, everybody, that um, it, it's one of the reasons for saying it with you because I don't think we have enough of a sense of the Trinity. Father, um, help um, each of the men in this room today um, become the son that you've given them to be. Help each of the women present here become the daughter you've given them to be. Christ, you called us to be your friend, said um, we're no longer servants, um, but friends. Help us to be your friend and to love as you asked us to. Holy Spirit, um, help. Um, you are a gift. You do things without calling attention to yourself. Um, hard for us to do. Strengthen us in our efforts to make of our own lives a gift um, to love as you do. Help us to find a strength in the work that we're doing together um, it's a, certainly a joy for me and Suzanne um, to feel that what we're doing is together with everybody else um, to take a strength from each other in doing this. Um, I ask a special blessing on um, Carmen. Um, none of us changes easily overnight. The older we get, the harder it is to change. Um, Conversions can be violent. Um, watch over Carmen. Um, um, help her to um, come out of herself, to be open to you and others. Um, um, it's hard often to ask for help in our pride. Um, help open her heart um, to others, um, to find a gladness in being with others, maybe to trust more. I'm not sure what's in the way, but be with her, please, and help her to open herself. And ask a um, special blessing on Lori. Let her heart quiet about her mom, trust in you. Um, that's our faith. It so often involves a cross. Um, be with her, um, keep her steady, um, particularly because of the joys that she does have in her life.
be with Chuck on his travels, keep him safe. Um, and um, <laughs> this is okay, Chris. Um, I ask a special blessing on Chris and Teresa um, and all of us and, um, and all that we're trying to do in our families, um, with our children, in our marriages. Families are not easy today. Um, um, help us all. Um, and be with, um, is it Tom? Yeah. Be with Tom in his surgery, surround him with your protection. Let everything go well. Um, and um, help him keep his spirits up. Sounds like they already are, but reinforce them, strengthen them, particularly in the event that um, there are difficulties. Um, we offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, okay, I've got a real dilemma. <coughs> I had one of those overwhelming in unexpected insights at the table tonight when Suzanne and I were talking and I spent the whole day putting my notes together and part of me is still debating whether I should just put them away and <laughs> wing this. But I think what I'm, I'm gonna get to something that I think is so important. I hope we have time. We have a lot to, I, I said we'd finish the Iliad tonight. I'm like, I went into evening tonight thinking we could finish. We may not, there's just, there's so much of importance going on at the end of the Iliad and, and it, to me it speaks um, too immediately to so much of what we do in our own lives that we may not. So we'll either finish it tonight or we'll take a little bit of time next week and start the Odyssey. But for sure, we're starting the Odyssey next week. So if you can read, read say the first eight chapters, something. The Odyssey is infinitely easier to read. It's a much simpler story. You don't have the millions of names to struggle with. Um, it's, it's, much, it's much simpler. You, you, you would almost believe that it was written by another poet. It's, it's so different, but it completes the story. In one sense, the Iliad's not a complete story. It won't be completed until we finish the Odyssey. They belong together, because everything that happens in the Odyssey takes place after Odysseus leaves home. And I think I've mentioned this before. Um, it's really important because one of the things that we don't deal with in the Odyssey is the effects of the war itself. And we're gonna be dealing with it everywhere. Um, Penelope's surrounded by 100 suitors. These men are trying to force her into a marriage. Telemachus, Odysseus' son, has grown up without a father. And what we're seeing is what happens to a family when all the men are away, because they've been away for 20 years in Odysseus' home. What happens when a male's absent, when a man is absent? And that's, a, that's not an uncommon situation in America. So it's, it speaks so immediately to us again, like the Iliad does. So we'll start um, next week for sure on the Odyssey, okay? Um, um, take out your, oh well, no, here, you don't even have to. Um, a, a, a couple of things, let's see. Um, my mind is going so much that I'm wary about putting things off. Let me do the psalm, the, 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 the um, lyric um, that we're going to do, and then I'll, I'll talk about the other things to get us into the Iliad. 
You don't have to have the packet, but if you've got it, it's Psalm 127. And I thought it was fitting to read this psalm tonight because one of the things we're going to see, certainly when we get to the end of it tonight, it's going to be one of the conclusions that I make is um, so much of, of what happens in the Iliad happens because of the, um, the impiety of men. That the, they do not take the gods as seriously as they should. And the result of that's going to be the destruction of Troy. Troy is going to be destroyed. A whole civilization, a whole way of life is going to be destroyed because of the arrogance of men. <laughs> it seems like a common theme for the last three months. Um, but um, Anyway, that's going to be one of the things we're going to see um, pretty directly. And I thought it would be fitting to go back to this psalm, even though we've read it. Okay, So um, if you've got it handy... You can look at it, but if you don't, don't worry about it. Just listen to it. You've heard it before. It's Psalm 127. So from the Old Testament, Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Except the Lord build the house, they labor and build. Um, a couple of things before we start. This doesn't, well, it goes immediately to what we're doing, but it's not immediately evident in the text. God, I've got to hold on to this. Um, two things. Um, one of the questions that I um, asked everybody the last couple of weeks um, in relation to the lyrics we've been doing, a song for Simeon and Marina, remember? that both of those poems by Eliot were expressions of a man who was in a conversion state. He'd had this experience a little bit like St. Paul, the, th the third heaven, comes, returns to the world. Um, it's a question in my mind whether Paul saw the completeness of that vision, the third heaven, but he saw something that obviously affected everything he did here. So it colored everything. And the, the thesis, I hate using that word, the theme of both of those poems was um, in each instance, the, the poem was um, told from the point of view of a person who was in a conversion mode between things. That he'd seen something that um, was going to radically change his life, but he was still dealing, living in the familiar world that was a part of his world. And so it left him with this confused condition of... Um, of bringing together a familiar world with something like a dread, a fear. Um, it's actually, we, we talked with a friend the other day um, who's just begun seeing a girl and I asked him how he was doing and he said, I'm really a little bit afraid. And I said to him, you're exactly right where you should be. And I told him we'd been doing Marina and, and suddenly his face lit up. It was like it was okay to be afraid, you know, when you, when you're just going out with somebody and you feel like your life is about to change. What else could you feel? God, if you didn't feel a little bit of fear, you wouldn't be human. Um, 
So um, the question that I kept asking you, where are we when we take the Eucharist? I, I put that as forcefully as I could. You take the Eucharist, you leave the church, and you're out in the parking lot. Where are you? I think, maybe unfortunately for too many, we're on our way to the car and home. And the question that I was posing is, do we really appreciate the mysterious dimension of that situation? If the Eucharist is in you, if you're taking Christ in you, then you're in his kingdom. We are. Even with our sins, we're asked to participate in that kingdom. Do we feel that enough? Do we imagine it as a part of our life? I mean, are we back in Marina and Song for Simeon? Are we there aware that we're living in a mystery? Because so often we're so comfortable with what we do, we don't allow those mysteries, we don't give them a place in our life. So the question that I kept asking is, where are we? Um, we're called to a constant conversion. Are we living in mysteries? Do we make a place for it? I would say in our world that the tendency is not. If there were any group in America that should be comfortable in mysteries, it's Catholics. Fundamentalist Protestants don't believe in the sacraments. They're living Christianity according to a moral code. I hope that's clear to everybody. They live by a moral code. They're back under the law. That moral code is the law. The mysteries, the sacramental life, gone. Um, what troubles me is one of the questions I keep asking myself, where are Catholic artists today? Where are the artists, not, not ecclesial, not stuck in the church. Where are the artists who are taking us out in the world and showing us the world exactly the way Homer does, the way it is, but leaves us with a sense that there's something mysterious, transcendent going on. I, you know from my reading, every work we've read had an element of that. Merchant of Venice, um, much All's Well That Ends Well, Anthony and Cleopatra, every work we've read. Um, there's something of a threshold in each one of them, and we're recognizing something, the wonder in Merchant of Venice. Antonio gets his ships back. They return to Belmont. An extraordinary thing has just happened. Helena offers this love to this <laughs> not very good guy. I'm being nice right now. Um, and, and what she does has the effect of softening that class division in France. You know, I mean, um, we, I could go on and on. You know, I mean, we've been reading works that make us aware that there's something transcendent. So where are we when we take the Eucharist? Just to hold on to that question. The other thing that I'd like to say tonight, just by way of a general comment, is I can't read the Iliad without being aware that men are constantly aware of the gods. It's not uncommon for a man to say, you could not have done that if you didn't have Zeus in you, that if he weren't motivating you. You know, you couldn't have taken that step, or this couldn't have happened, or the gods are doing this. I've, I've um, maintained from the beginning that Homer believes in free will, and men make choices. The gods intervene, but men still, if you will. But the gods are very much involved in their lives. One of the beauties of that poem is that it makes it clear the gods are everywhere. So I want to put the question to all of us. Are we aware enough of, <laughs> I don't think we are, but I'm going to put it this way anyway. Are we aware enough of the presence of God in our lives, within us, always? Even if we're committing a sin and we're in dread, I can't believe God isn't with us or we wouldn't even be aware of the dreadness. Um, are, are we aware of Christ in our lives as much as we should be? And I'm not talking about Christ as an abstraction, you know, in church. I'm talking about him immediately on a battlefield when men are killing each other 
You know, when we're in business, in school, whatever we're doing in our families, that the one of the poems that I read to you to me, I, it's one of my favorite poems, was Supernatural Love, that mother looking back at herself when she was four years old, stitching this beloved. It's, it's impossible to read that poem and not feel she's participating in the crucifixion. Um, do we feel that enough in our lives? Are we aware that God is present in a real way? One of the arguments that I made two, two weeks ago, or several weeks ago when we started the Iliad, remember I, I read that, that opening from Simone Weil's essay, The Iliad as a Poem of Force? She said the poems, the Iliad's about force. Men killing, men doing this, men, all, it's nothing but force. And I said, I don't think that's true. What the poem is essentially about is the, is the emergence, our, the Western culture being founded because we become aware that there's a logos present in nature everywhere. And it's the presence of that logos, the gods in the Iliad, that's putting a curb, giving a purpose and a direction to every use of force. Otherwise, it's, it's just a poem about the futility of war. Men killing each other. I don't think if we're reading well, we can come away without decision. It's full of meaning. The gods are everywhere. It's changing the way men are looking, or at least it's Homer shows it. I mean, one of the questions I'm going to ask later is, do the men, are the men aware of the change taking place? I don't think they are, but we'll wait on that. But anyway, the, the question that I want to just keep alive for all of us is, um, where are we when we take the Eucharist? Are we aware that the spirit is present? If we are, according to our faith, there's no way for us not to be aware that that spirit is Christ. Because when Christ sent the spirit, it was him. It's the spirit of Christ, the paraclete. He was the one to pick up his work when he left. Is that clear? So it's, it's not just the spirit, it, <laughs> Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That spirit is one with Christ now that Christ has taken on our human nature, returned to the Father, and left the spirit to carry on his work. So whatever work that is, it's to call us to the incarnation, the crucifixion, our death, our resurrection, a renewal, a participation in the divine, you know, in what we're doing, to, not, to be careful not to let this world take us over. All of those things. Okay. <laughs> That's my preamble to the. <laughs> Sorry? I think I did. I hope I did. Stephanie keeps smiling. She's in. <laughs> it's on. Okay. Um, very, very quickly. Let's, let's get to the Iliad. Last week. Um, we, um, we, um, we read up to that point where um, Patroclus takes Achilles' armor, goes into battle, is killing people right and left. He kills Sarpedon. That's that scene in which Zeus weeps tears of blood. We read that. Um, and um, um, Patroclus kills him. Finally, at the wall where Achilles told him not to go, Hector kills him. And actually, you know, Hector's, the killing is three remove. The god gives him a blow, um, another Trojan gives him a blow, and Hector comes in to finish it off, but he will get the glory. And um, Achilles loses his armor, and you know that all of book 18, 
excuse me, was, um, was devoted to the fight over Patroclus' body and Achilles' armor. Hector takes it, um, he's got it now, and um, Thetis, um, Achilles learns about Patroclus' death, he weeps, um, um, his mother weeps. It's at that point, um, that was the major point that I wanted all of us to get to last week, it's at that point that Achilles says, I let everybody down. Um, it's, it's even, I let everybody down, it's like he's saying, I don't deserve to be here on earth. I mean, he is I'm so aware of his failure. Shortly after that, the Achaeans have the first meeting. That's the first time since the first book that the um, Achaeans have been united, brought together, because they've been divided since Achilles left the battle. And it's during that assembly that, that you remember it, that Agamemnon says, um, it wasn't my fault, it was the God's fault. Um, so. The, I, it's just hard to miss the, con, the contrast. Um, Agamemnon saying, it wasn't my fault. I was deceived by the gods. And Achilles is saying, um, I let everybody down. And um, what I wanted to impress on everybody, um, is, at least as I read this book, he's the only person that I'm aware of in that book who faces a failure. I mean, some other, I mean, when I look at, for instance, if I look at the Odyssey, or I mean uh, Odysseus, I don't see Odysseus doing anything stupid or foolish. He's just a wise, he'll be the hero of the next book. So I don't see any conspicuous failures, but Achilles looks at everything that happens as if he were to blame for it. So he takes it on himself. He says, I've let everybody down. And shortly after that, Thetis goes to Hephaestus and asks for the armor, and you remember that's where we left off. She gives him the armor, she presents it to him, it clangs on the ground. None of the Achaeans can look at it. Nobody can look at it. And he will put that on, armor on and return to war. That's where we left off. But here's where I want to go, because it's going to something that I believe is overwhelming about this work. We know that Thetis got her armor as a compensation for having to marry a mortal. So, um, that armor is passed on to Achilles from his mother. And we know that it carries a divine wound. She was humiliated, so there's a parallel between her humiliation and Achilles's. Agamemnon dishonored him when, in treating him as he did. So what's at issue in this book, at the center of the Iliad, is this whole question of giving a man his due. And we know that that the understanding of the honor code at this time is that due is seen in terms of booty. That people are rewarded and the more reward you have, the more glory that's given to you. But what the opening scene makes us aware of is that if, if honor, if dignity is attributed because somebody gives you something, it can be taken away. And if that's the case, who are you? And what, what we've seen, I think, I hope, is that what Homer's aware of, what he's showing us in the Iliad, is that there is this intrinsic, innate dignity in man. It's it has a, man has a transcendent quality in him. And it's important to see that. Because if you don't, everything that man does with himself is degrading. Keep booty on you, keep taking all the horses or armor you want, the women you want, um, they can all be taken away. And if they are, then who is this thing called man? So one of the things we've seen is that this book is fundamentally about the individual dignity of a human being, this inherent dignity. When 
Um, so Achilles was humiliated. So was Thetis. She passed on that armor. That armor clearly has made him, or it's related to the, um, to the reputation he has as being the greatest of the Achaeans. Because for nine and a half years, there's nobody on either side that looks at him in any other way except this is the greatest warrior. When he's out of the battle, the Greeks lose. Okay? So that armor has a divine aspect, okay? but it's gone. Now Patroclus has it. And you know, we talked about this. Thetis went to Hephaestus, made the new armor, gives it to it. And we saw last week, on that armor are the two cities of men, the city at war, the city of justice, the dancing fields, the agrarian world, um, animals, dancing. There's everything there. And it's surrounded by the ocean. And the ocean was the extent of the known world. Beyond the ocean was what's unknown. So that's the known cosmos to the Greek. And when she throws it on the ground, none of the Achaeans can look at it. It's too terrifying. And we know that when he goes into battle, nobody's going to, there's going to be one risk for him. Nobody's going to touch him. He's going to defeat everybody. So in some sense, that shield means something. Okay? It, it helps us understand the change that's taking place in Achilles at this moment. Now, I want to go back to this because this is absolutely crucial. And this is where I'm afraid I'm going to lose it here and we're not going to finish the Iliad tonight. Um, what's the difference between those two kinds of honor, or sorry, armor? Why, what's, what, how are we to understand what's just happened? Because we, or in fact, a couple of things. We know that when Achilles goes back into the war, he's not going to be um, vulnerable. Nobody be, will be able to touch him. And when he goes back into the war, the gods come in as well. And there's what I called a psychomachia. There's this dislocation. I'm going to read it in a minute. There's this dislocation in the world, and the gods go to war with each other. So this moment marks something crucial in the life of Achilles and his relationship to the gods, the divine order. So the question that I want to just take a minute with before we get back to the book and look at the book is, what's the difference between those two shields? What do they help us understand about Achilles and the change that's taking place at this moment? Is that clear? Okay. <laughs> Why are you smiling? Because I'm waiting for me. <laughs> <laughs> so am I. Come on, what's your, what, how do you look at it? That was good in itself. Just anybody else? Yeah, Bob. Uh, there's. It seems like uh, there are. There, clearly, there's a defining moment for Achilles when he decides after Patroclus' death that he's going to go back into battle, and he asks his mother to bring him another. She agrees to bring him another uh, suit of armor, uh, but uh, some of the father said, you can go two different ways. 
without honor. Let me just shorten it. She, she says, you can live a long, comfortable life without honor, or you can live a short life with honor. And from the moment of the end of the story, he's sitting on a fence. He's, he's back out of the battle. And yet he hasn't really decided to go home either. And so, but at the moment that he asks, that she brings him the armor, he's made a decision there. I'm going to go fulfill my honor. Yeah, I think she does, he does it before because he already admits, he said, I've let everybody down. He knows, and she, the two of them weep together. She weeps over because she knows when he goes back into the battle, he's going to die. Um, so he, she, but she gives the armor after that turn has been made. Um, I think the turn occurs when he says, I've let everybody down, and now he's got to do something about it. Um, and I, I've talked about that that destiny, because I can remember for the longest time as a teacher thinking about it, 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 because it was put prophetically, it's a prophecy, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's a destiny. It always had a sort of oracular mystical meaning that was secret to me. And then one day it occurred to me, this is really silly. That's the same choice every man faces. And I, I remember I used the, the, the image of the circle as the, uh, the men going back into the, swarm, you know, Homer had a number of, of the companions. When a man goes back into that circle, he's anonymous. He, he's not named. Everybody in there is nameless. But when he comes out, he faces his destiny. He's got to risk himself. That's, that's the definition of a hero. He comes out because in that circle, everybody's anonymous. They have no identity. It's a mass. It's a swarm. So every person in the book faces that same destiny. All of us do. I, mean, I remember making that point in this group that every one of us has a decision to make whether to risk ourselves at times when things are risky or avoid the risk and remain comfortable. So it suddenly struck me that the, the choice he's facing is the choice every man faces and every man in the book faces. How he meets that is partly what the book is about. Hector meets it in a very different way. Any other thoughts on the on the shield? One of the things I mentioned last week was that the original shield was given to his mother, but the second shield was made especially for, for him. him. He probably wasn't even thought about. Yeah. Shield yep. I didn't even. If you'll turn to my notes on the board again. <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to. No, you're not. I can't tell you. <laughs> He's going to do <laughs> the trouble is that something different is different every week. <laughs> oh, it's getting worse and worse. Um, here, one. This is going to be towards the end of our talk today, but I'm going to do it now. According to Aristotle, it comes sometime later, and there's there's not a question in my mind that the wisdom that we find in Plato and Aristotle have their roots in Homer. Aristotle said, um, in the uh, politics, Aristotle said, this is so important, God, it just amazes me. The, the poets come first. 
and the philosophers will never admit that. Um, Aristotle says this in the politics. He said, um, the whole, I've said, I think I said this last week, the whole is prior to and greater than the sum of the parts. I'm gonna repeat that. The whole is prior to and greater than the sum of the parts. In a Cartesian modern world, the whole is the sum of its parts. So if you look at a car and you lose a part, you just find another part to replace it. If you're a human being in that world, it means you're replaceable because you're just another part, okay? Aristotle said the whole is prior to and greater than the sum of the parts. He said um, the individual and the family are prior to the polis in time, but in nature they're not. The polis is prior to and greater than the individual and the family. Is that clear? What's the polis? Say, come up here where I can hear you. Come up here. He said, we know that in the empire, the individual doesn't emerge. Not in China, not in Egypt. You could have 100,000 people working on the pyramids and you'll never get one of them named. So the individual doesn't emerge in the empire. It's always a dynastic rule, form of rule. China's the same way today. They can kill people. If people demonstrate against the Chinese government, you know the United States is gonna be upset because they're violating human rights. In China, the state is the whole. And if it means sacrificing an individual, they will. They'll run, they'll run them over in tanks. The individual does not emerge in, in most of the Eastern empires, or most of the East and in the empires. The individual does emerge in the tribe, but because the tribe is um, kept at a level of necessity, it's called the, blood, the bloodline, the tribe, the ethnic racial group, um, individuals can't develop themselves. They're too bound by a level of necessity. They all have to, they have to do what they can to survive. Okay? Is that clear? So no individual, individual, but in a really limited sense in the tribe. He said that it's only in the polis that the person can fulfill his potential as a human being. I'm going to, <laughs> Um, be, because of this reason. In the polis, because of this um, thing that he calls the, dist, um, dist, not the, not the distribution of labor, but the, um, yeah, it's, the, it's the distribution of labor when, when individuals get together and somebody makes roofs and somebody does shoes and people do different things and they can use money to, um, to find a way of commuting those prices. It, it means Everybody doesn't have to do everything. They can share in what they're doing. When that happens, an element of freedom opens up that doesn't open up either in the tribe or the empire. Now, what's the importance of that freedom? What, what would you think for Plato and Aristotle? It means you're free to think. You have time to think. You have leisure. And with leisure, you can begin to philosophize. Philosophy. Man, this is in the Old Testament, it's in Plato, it's in Aristotle. The beginning of wisdom is wonder. To wonder, wonder means wanting to know the causes of things. Children do that instinctively. Adults, sadly, 
lose it. We should go to our death. This is me now. We should go to our death wondering. Constantly asking, you know, in a state of wonder like children. So it's only in the polis that the individual can fulfill his destiny, his potential, who he is. So the polis is that configuration, that concept we have of an individual attaining his destiny through the help of other people. Because the, the, according to Aristotle, the, the polis has a self-sufficiency that the individual doesn't because we need each other, every individual. We, we shouldn't be alone. We can't fulfill ourselves alone. Is that clear? So, and here's the paradox. Wait a minute, is that clear? In the tribe, in the empire, the individual doesn't emerge. In the tribe, individuals are named, but they're prevented from attaining all of their potential because they live too much at the blood level, at a level of necessity. It's only in the polis, a community in which a person can be helped to learn um, by working with others, that he can attain his potential. Here's the paradox. If, if that's true for any person, individual, it means he always carries others with him because whoever he turns out to be, he could never be that person without the help of others. Not any of us here. Say that again. Hmm? Say that again. Not any of us here. I don't remember what I said, Mary. Don't ask me that. I can't. I don't even know. <laughs> what? He carries the community with him. He's one with them. We know that, right? When people, you generally, when people attain a certain excellence, it's, it's not uncommon for them to we get weepy because they're so grateful for the help that they receive from other people. They carry them with them. So whoever that individual is, he's always one with another. In our faith, it's in the body of Christ. One of the things that should distinguish us from the other denominations of Christianity is we, we believe that our nature is communal, not private. The, the, in the Protestant world, it's a private relation with God. For us, it should be communal. What's the ultimate source of our communal nature? The communal nature of the Trinity. Our God is not alone, it's three persons. We are by nature communal. We were meant to love and be loved. So whoever the individual is, he carries within him the community that helped him achieve his goal, okay? Now go back for a second. Are, is everybody clear? This is Aristotle, he was later. This is lots of years later, but I'm just saying what happened. You're clear about this, right? Okay. For Aristotle to say the polis um, is prior to and greater than the individual and the family means the polis is more important than either the individual or the family. The danger for all of us, I'm assuming everybody knows this, the danger is we can get too stuck in our own ego and we can get stuck in our own families. That enabling, the, the, one of the greatest dangers we face in families is enabling. And here's where this is ultimately. What I, the claim that I'm going to make at the end is Troy's going to be destroyed. I'm going to call Troy the enabling city. <laughs> New York, 
San Francisco, America, and Ukraine. For reasons which I think Homer makes clear. Um, if this isn't clear, let me just for a second step back because I hope, I hope you can follow my mind when it's scattered. I think I said this before, if you, um, if you read the Gospels and pay attention to what Christ's doing, Christ, I think that the two gravest dangers that he kept addressing were the religious leaders of his time, he presented the greatest danger, and the family. Okay? What, I think what we're learning here from Homer already anticipates Christ. Christ had to leave his family. Does that mean he didn't love them? Absolutely not. It's not what's going on. But um, what our tradition makes clear is there's a danger in holding ourselves to the family and not preparing kids to go beyond it because our ultimate end was, is with something larger. It was, it's with God, it's with his kingdom, it's with the Trinity. Um, so for Aristotle to say the polis is prior to the individual and the family um, by nature, that assumes a metaphysical aspect of the family, or I mean, sorry, to the polis, that there's something greater. It has a metaphysical tie. I think it's to the gods, to being. We have a nature, and that nature relates us to something larger than just ourselves or our families. And if we get stuck in, if we become too self-centered, if we get too bound by our families, um, without knowing that we get caught up in all sorts of disorders. Troy is that kind of city. I want to make that clear as soon as I can. Um, but for now, I just want to make that point. Now, go back to my question about the shield, because I think Mary's right on. We talked about that. But does that throw any light on the difference between those two shields? The shield... Sorry? Which? Which? Yeah, why? Well, pretty much presents the world. So it's not just an individual that's going beyond. Or familial. The nature of Thetis' shield, that comes to him through a family line. It, I don't want to diminish the greatness. Homer doesn't. That shield is his protection for nine and a half years. I hope everybody's seen there's no question about the worth or value of that shield for the, for the whole war. He steps out of it and something happens. But there's no question that that comes from his mother. It's familiar in its power and it's got a divine element. When Hephaestus makes that new armor, it is for him original. So there's something, there's something independent and original. No matter how important that tie was to his mother, something different is emerging now. And the nature of it, it, he has a wholeness now, the world. It's a much greater wholeness. That shield represents an, an element that's transcendent. It comes from the gods. But it also represents a wholeness he never had before. He's admitted his own faults, which to me is essential. I went through this. If, I mean, the, you know, if you're an alcoholic or an addict or you have any addictions, if you... When any of us reaches a point of saying, my fault, my fault, what, what do you have to be afraid of then? So long as you don't admit that to yourself, you're gonna live your life in fear. 
When Achilles goes back into the war, he's not afraid of anything. He's accepted his death. He's accepted his limitations as a human being. What does Hector do? Constantly says, oh, if I could only be as the gods. Even Priam, I'm going to read it shortly. Priam said, my son was a god. I'll read the passage in a minute. Priam looks at his son as a god. Hector does everything he can to exceed his limits. He puts on Achilles' armor and dies. So the poem is very much about this extraordinary... God, I don't know. The modern world's lost it. Christ reaffirmed it. I mean, he should have. Christ didn't come down as an angel. You know, it troubles when I hear people saying, oh, my angel. I'd like to hear particularly mothers say, oh, my human being. <laughs> and affirm it. I mean, we, we have such a degraded sense of ourselves as humans. If this poem is about anything, it's about an affirm, it's affirming this extraordinary dignity, this worth in the human person. People are killing each other because they've got a misguided sense of honor. But what emerges with the struggle that Achilles goes through is this new sense of honor, this new sense of, of the wholeness that a human being potentially has. That's what emerges from this poem, I think. And we can see the shift if we look at the armor and think what it represents. Achilles had that armor for nine and a half years. He, he was un, nobody could defeat him. It's not like we're diminishing the worth of it. But something happens in this conversion moment. He accepts fault. He accepts his limits as a human. And it seems to me what Homer's shown us is when a human being accepts his limits as a human being, something good comes from that. Whoever we are, whatever degree, we're all different. Um, so let me stop. Any questions about that before we go to the book? When we finished Dante and St. Francis a couple of months ago, one, I mean, one of the things that, you, if you read the Divine Comedy and you get through the whole thing, you can't come to the end without feeling that, home, or that Dante is celebrating this extraordinary thing that God created in his own image. Does the scientific world leave us with that? I, I think I asked you the question before, what are our beginnings, high or low? If you, want to if you want to understand yourself, one of the first questions you ask are, what are our beginnings? Are they high or low? I thought I asked that of this group. What are our beginnings, high or low? Explain it, Mary. We come from apes, we come from an accident. We come from monkeys, out of nothing. <laughs> Are the beginnings for the pagans, the world that we're in right now with Homer, high or low? What's Hilly's, Achilles' ancestry? What does he descend from? God. Yeah, an immortal. The beginnings of the ancient world are high. We, there's something high about most human beings. We're getting an image of a greatness that man's capable of because they had this sense that there was a divine element. There was something transcendent to the nature of man. If you look at the scientific world, our beginnings are low. We're shrunken, badly, badly shrunken. We just don't have a good understand, a good image of ourselves. We're these strange things that have, except for those of you who Acknowledge you come from grandparents, or. Um. I think it goes back to what she was saying earlier in the class about our 
yeah, make a place for it. No, I agree. I'm so grateful for the sacraments. Take the sacraments away. Um, uh, think about it. Take the sacraments out of our lives. It, it's the one thing that keeps us in touch with the miraculous. You know, if we, if we think of the sacraments as efficacious, that they are effective, you, you can't help but feel most humbled. God is doing something we can't confession, Eucharist, you know, the, um, anyway. Any other questions before we look at the... Do you understand the significance of this, how important this moment is and the, and the, the, the movement from the shield, the armor that he received from his mom and the armor that's... And remember, the, the, the source of Hephaestus, the god of craft, made this armor. There's a transcendent aspect to it. He's going to go to war with it. But there's this wholeness that he brings that, that I think is, if we think about the concept that I'm putting out here, is that the individual is not just an individual isolated here. Aristotle, if, if he had, gives this any meaning, it's that it doesn't emerge here, it doesn't emerge here. The individual emerges, but it's not, it's not the individual as we understand it in the modern world. It's not isolated autonomous. That's the product of the scientific world. It's not isolated and autonomous. The individual that emerges here carries the polis, the community, with him. He's a part of something greater. So when, when we think about Achilles' shield, remember, it's all there. There's this wholeness that's offered to us. And at the center of it, renunciations. He had to turn his back from Agamemnon, or this, none of this would have happened. He had to step out of that honor code because it was flawed. And when he goes back into battle, he goes back knowing he's going to lose his life. So at the center of this movement towards completion are these renunciations, these moments of self-giving up. The first one's in pride. The second one is there's a greater degree of humility in what he does then because he knows he's going to die. And we see that at the end, everything that happens at the end, which I want to get to now, but let me stop. Any, any questions? Or... Chris, yeah. Glad to hear from you. <laughs> um, so what if the polis is lacking? What if there is no... Uh, yeah. The state. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I don't know. Where, yeah, where, where is the priority if, if there is no focus uh, within your family? I guess it would be. Well, I hope I can answer. We're getting away from the elite, so I want to be careful of time here. No, 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 no. You're doing, that's a really great question. My answer to that would be, without the polis, what you've got, wait, there's two ways to look at this. Without the polis, all you've got is the empire or the tribe. What I'm suggesting here, because you know going back to the beginning, I'm presenting the Iliad as a founding work of Western civilization. So a new concept of a community is emerging. The polis is 
Aristotle's word for it. But if you think about it, it in some ways it's a concept. If, if I, for example, if I were to look at a modern America today, I'd say we've got all the characteristics of an empire. The state has become absolute in its power or we wouldn't be politically correct all the time. That's a, that's, that's a state assuming all powers. And that way we're like China. But in another extent, we're isolated individuals. I mean, we're part of families or tribes or ethnic communities which can bind us. Does that mean you're gonna be bad in either case? No, because there are lots of good people in China. There's lots of good people in tribes. Would it, so I, I, I'm not presenting this as a way of demeaning, except in this sense, what, what I'm saying here, I think what we're learning from Homer and what we'll learn as we go along is that what's happening here is that man is discovering something new about himself and his relationship to his community. And that, that isn't true in the East, still isn't true in most Eastern regimes. And it isn't true in tribal regimes that still exist in the world. That doesn't mean people can't have meaningful lives in any of those settings. Is that clear? But it does mean that this potential that we're looking at, that the human being is this extraordinary thing, comes to fulfillment here. Why, why, why aren't the people all over the East going to Shanghai? Why are so many people coming to America? People aren't fleeing to other countries, they're going to the West, they're either going to Europe or America for a reason, because we value freedom because of, there's some longing for us to become something we all feel inside or we wouldn't leave the worlds we are getting away from. And the Catholic Church in one sense is the fullest embodiment of that because it's got God at its center. I, I don't think any of us can be Catholic without being integrally a part of communities. Take those communities away and who would we be? I mean, we would certainly be less than I think we who would be if we were active with people. I'm so grateful that we're doing this work together. I love seeing you guys weekly. Even you. <laughs> it's, it's mutual, Mary. Um, can't tell you how much I enjoy your smile and I'll never forget your, stop whining, stop whining. That is marked forever in my memory. Any other questions about this? Um, what's happening right now at this moment? Okay, let's go on because there's a lot to do. We've got to come back. I don't know that we'll make it tonight, but I want to come back and ask you this question because you know that it's paramount. Where is Christ in all this? Where is God? Um, was God asleep? Was Christ, the, or the Son, Christ hadn't entered the world, the Son. Was the Father and Son and Holy Spirit asleep before Christ came? Was God not active? Where do we find him? And if we do find God's presence, are there indications of something of Christ there. So I, I, if, I, if you could all hold on to that. Okay, when, let's, let's go to page 405. Um, Achilles puts on his armor. Actually, go back to 403 first. Um, he's received his armor. You know that nobody can look at the shield. And book 19 ends with a ritual dressing. He puts on his armor. If any of you have seen Last of the Samurai, you'll 
see the same thing occurring in that movie. It, it's almost, um, it's, it, it's ritualistic um, in almost a sacred way. And he's putting the, on this armor with a new sense of identity. Um, and the, the whole scene marks it. Go to page um, um, 402 at the very bottom. Sorry, um, book 19, line around 395 or so. Um, while behind him Achilles' helm for battle took his stance, shining in all his armor like the sun when he crosses above us, and cried in a terrible voice on the horses of his father, Xanthos, Balios, Bay, Dapple, famed sons of Porterge, take care to bring in another way your charioteer back to the company of the Danans when we give over fighting not leave him to lie fallen there as you did to Patroclus. He's scolding the horses as if they betrayed Patroclus. This is a horse, this is a horse speaking back to his master. And, and you, all, you all know the story of Balaam, the ass that spoke prophetically in the Old Testament. So think about it because um, clearly Homer had no access to the Old Testament, but that he had this uncanny sense of things happening that so line up with the Old Testament and New Testament continues to amaze me. Then from beneath the yoke, the glean-footed horse answered him, Xanthos. And as he spoke, bowed his head so that all the mane fell away from the pad and swept the ground by the cross yoke. The goddess of the white arms, Hera, had put a voice in him. We shall still keep you safe for this time, O heart Achilles. And yet the day of your death is near, but it is not we who are to blame. So interesting. I'm, I'm getting ahead. Achilles, some, some moderns see Hector as the hero of this. I'm going to try to answer that before we get to the end because I don't think he is. But um, he's the hero. He's this extraordinary figure. And here, the horses know something he doesn't. Because he's just been quick to blame them. You know, you don't, don't abandon me the way you did Patroclus. Um, the goddess white arms haired put a voice in him. We shall keep you safe for this time, O heart Achilles. And yet the day of your harsh death is near. But it is not we who are to blame, but a great God and powerful destiny. For it was not because we were slow, because we were careless, that the Trojans have taken the armor from the shoulders of Patroclus. But it was the high God, the child of lovely haired Leto, who killed him among the champions and gave glory to Hector. But for us, we too could run with the blast of the west wind, who they say is the lightest of all things. So they're, they're the extraordinary powers. They're not going to leave him. But they're acknowledging a destiny to things. I've, I've spoken about this before. I don't want, I, it's too complicated to do any justice to in the work that we're doing. But remember, for us, um, all of us have a destiny. We all face the same choice Achilles did. Long, comfortable life, without honor, or we risk ourselves and we step... We step into situation, this is so important. I think Americans thrive on how to do it, you know, how to build, how to do this, how, how to have a, what to do to have a family. You name it, we've got a how to do it book. We, we reduce everything to a technical rationalization of, a, of an action. Do this and this will happen. We know that we're all gonna die. We're all destined to die. None of us is gonna escape that. If, you're, if you go to Father James, homilies or I mean I, I can't count the number of times he said when he's at St. Francis the end of all of us is the same it's a five by eight box you've probably heard that from him more than a few times none of us is going to escape that that's our end 
The interesting thing for us, in, according to our belief, is that there is an ultimate design to things, a pattern. That pattern was set by Christ. He came, so he took it back to the, the Father and the Spirit. He took on our human nature, went back. That pattern is that we all have a transcendent end. We were meant to return to God. That's our end. We know that we've been asked by our God to give our lives up um, for others and participate in that. And to the degree to which we do, we share a life with him. That's a destiny for every one of us. It's fixed. Now, how any one of us does that, every one of us has a separate story. It's unique, I mean, what you said. I hope that's clear. Each one of us has his own shield. Each one of us is original. Each one of us is an individual. We're a part of a family. Each, we all came from families. We may be fathers and mothers, but each one of us has a larger end. It's to be, I mean, the whole thing about marriage, when, they, you know, when they're trying to pull one over in Christ and said, of the seven brides and but when they all die, which one will be married? He was really clear, you're not gonna be married. The family and the marriage will give way to a greater life. We're supposed to make a place for that in our lives here. If we don't, we get stuck and do stupid things. I'm trusting all of us know that from the mistakes. <laughs> Maybe I'm speaking just for myself here, but trusting all of us know them. So the horse's prophecy, this is a holy moment. It's a oracular moment. When he steps into the war, he knows he's going to die. He's giving his life up. So what happens when he goes into the war? Immediately Zeus calls all the gods and they fight. There's too much here going on. Let me let's see if I can if I can do this. Who are if I can line up the battles? Um Like the shields, there's a real significance to what's going on here. Um, what we find here is all of these Western gods defeat the Eastern gods. Why? Because in one sense, remember, this is what I called a psychomachia. except for Zeus is outside. And, and just, just remember that Poseidon and Apollo quarrel with Zeus a lot. 
And it's interesting that Zeus, if you think about the difference, Poseidon and Apollo are both identifying with actual earthly things. The sea, um, Poseidon the sea and Apollo the sun, the heavens. Um, Zeus has no such attachment, no such identity. So Apollo and Poseidon are identified more immediately with the, with the cosmos that immediately affects us. Zeus has a power greater. He represents something more transcendent. Um, but what does this mean? Athena defeats Ares and Aphrodite. She's the only one who defeats two of the goddesses. Hera defeats Artemis and Hephaestus defeats Xanthos. Athena is the goddess of wisdom. She's the only goddess that is dual in power. She's the only one that came out of Zeus's head. That's her nature. She sprung from his head. Um, she's the goddess of wisdom and the goddess of war. She's the only one that combines those two powers. She defeats Ares, who's the god of war, and Aphrodite, who's the goddess of pleasure, beauty. Hera is the goddess of the hearth. She's the wife. She's always making problems for her husband. Um, she defeats Artemis, who's the virgin goddess, the goddess, the huntress of the woods. Hephaestus is the goddess of craft. He's the one that makes Achilles' shield, and he defeats Xanthos, the river. When Achilles is trapped in the river, it's Xanthos that comes and starts spreading his fire all around to get him out, because otherwise Achilles would die. What's going on here? They're trying to get it, get the thing going, get the whole, they're trying to get everybody together. They've the succeeded at that. <laughs> what does it mean that the, the Western gods, if you look at their nature, what's going on here? There's, do you see that there's an affinity commonality to the groups on each side. And by the way, I wanted just to, to show how, tr um, how accurate Mary is in what she's describing. Um, just to show you, turn to page 405 for a second. Wait, is this, yeah. This is book 20, it, it's, it's, it's at that point where the gods all go into the war. And then we get this description um, about, this is book 20, about line 55. So the blessed God stirred on the opponents, drove them together and broke out among themselves the weight of their quarrel. From high above the father of gods and men made thunder terribly. That's the power of Zeus. While Poseidon from the deep under them shuddered all the illimitable earth, the sheer heads of the mountains and all the feet of Ida with their many waters were shaken and all her crests in the city of Troy, the ships of the Achaeans. Adonius, Lord of the dead of the underworld was in terror and sprang from his throne and screamed aloud for fear that above him who circles the land, Poseidon might break the earth open and the houses of the dead lie open to men and immortals, ghastly and moldering. So the very gods shudder before them. Such was the crash that sounded as the gods came driving together. There's this dislocation in the earth. Something terrible is going on with Achilles re-entering the war. What's going on? If you, look at, if you look at the two sets, it seems to me what's happening is that 
The victory of the Western gods over the Eastern is an affirmation of the rational over the appetitive, the cognitive over the passions, art over nature. Art, art over nature. Paris, the goddess of the heart, marriage. Artemis is the virgin god. She lives for herself. When a woman ceases to be a virgin and enters into marriage, she lives for more than herself. So that what you have in, in this defeat is something moving towards the polis again. That there is the emergence of the, of the logos. There is this emergence of this rationality in nature that can help the human being master, <coughs> master himself <coughs> and nature. See? So it's an affirmation of everything that's rational and cognitive over the, every, everything that's emotional and just passionate. <coughs> Sorry. Just to put it in the terms in which I've been using for the last couple of weeks, it's, it's really the emergence of an understanding of the Logos which is peculiar to the West and the way it changes our understanding of ourselves as human beings. We are very different as a culture from tribal cultures in the world or empires. We have a greater degree of freedom. Our hope is that if we use that freedom well, it will make for better lives for us. Now, um, I want to, any questions about this or what's going on in this war between the, the gods? I don't either. <laughs> you can ask that about a lot of things and I'd say the same thing I don't, um, I'm not sure but the number 12 keeps recurring a lot I'm sure there's some, some significant I, I don't know what it is um, it's interesting the 12 tribes of it I mean there's something mystical about that number um, hmm yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we're going to get to Hector in just a minute, um, but I want to try to recall something. I'm so sorry. I hope we're not losing Ellen here. Ellen asked this question about Hector. Um, in our last couple of meetings, I tried to make a point of going to some of the scenes in which Hector played a central role. Remember um, when Sarpedon was killed, um, Glaucos came to his defense and wanted to um, spare him the humiliations that the Greeks would have wrapped on him in the body. Hector left him and Sarpedon said, for shame, you keep saying you and your, all you need is your family. There it is again. All you need is your family and you can feed all of us. Boy, Homer is so relentless on this. He, he's so clear about the dangers to us. Um, Hector's fled and he wants Patroclus' armor. And when there's a fight and he's switching armor, he says, protect me now. And he goes and he tries to go after the horses. And when the Trojans feel like they're threatened by something, he says, if any of you are worried about your possessions, leave them with me now and we'll treat it as a common treasure. I, I don't want to go to the line, but that's what he says. If it's a common treasure, where's it going to end up? In Troy. Yeah? 
I mean, over and over again, we, we've been getting these hints all along. And, and I, I've mentioned those two passages where Hector said when they were close to the ships, oh, if I could only be as Apollo. Um, and one of them got a Captain Hember, Apollo, and the other got all the days of my life. There's this constant longing for immortality to identify himself with more than human. Now take a look at... Um, um, 419, I hope this is the interesting. Um, if anybody can help me here. When um, Achilles is stuck in the river, Xanthos. Oh, gosh. It's, uh, <coughs> let's see. When the, when the fire comes at Suriname. I think it's... Um, It's 425. Go on over to 425 for a second. This is book 21, about line 275. Achilles is stuck in the river Xanthos, and it looks like he's going to lose his life. We know that every time he, he uh, meets with a Trojan, or, or multiple Trojans, he kills them. He kills several, often. But here in the river, his life is actually in danger. 425. I think the way this, I hope this is it. Uh, it's about line 275. Um, Father Zeus, no God could endure to save me from the river who am so pitiful. And what then shall become of me? It's not so much as any Uranian God who has done this, but my own mother who beguiled me with falsehood who told me that underneath the battlements of the armored Trojans I should be destroyed by the flying shafts of Apollo. I wish now Hector had killed me, the greatest man grown in his place. A brave man would have been the slayer, as the slain was a brave man. But now this is a dismal death I'm doomed to be caught in. The most humiliating moment, for, except for that moment when he admits his fault, is here. And by the way, just looking ahead, Odysseus is going to say the same thing, and so will Aeneas. All three of those heroes will say um, anything but to die a shameful death by water because they'll lose their honor. It's as if to be overcome by nature or natural force in nature is humiliating to him. He, ra he would rather have died by Hector's hand because he'd still least have the claim. But if he dies here, it's just a mere accident. He's nobody. He's nothing. You see any ironies that point to our Catholic faith in this this is stunning to me. Chris, go Huh? Huh? Flesh it out. Baptism. What's the... Sprinkle a little bit of water? Are you kidding me? Our belief is in faith that we die through a natural element, we die by water and are reborn. 
The most terrifying, interesting, the most terrifying thing for every one of these heroes, we'll see it again and again, the prospect of dying at the hands of nature rather than another hero. They will lose their sense of who they are as humans. What's at the center, the beginning of our faith? Baptism through water. Just an irony here, I thought it... Um, now, go... Let's see, do we go to... I think probably so. Let's go to Hector. Or before one thing before we get there. Go to 419. He has just freed himself from Xanthos and he suddenly encounters what to him almost has the appearance of a ghost. And you can read it and think, what's the big deal here? Who is this guy? Um, so he's just come out of the stream. It's red with blood um, and fire. And um, remember, he wanted to um, take prisoner 12 men again and take them back and punish them as a way of answering his revenge against Hector. But when he comes out, he has this description. This is page 419, book 21, about line 35. And there he came upon a son of Dardanian prime as he escaped from the river Lycaon, one whom he himself had taken before and led him unwilling from his father's garden on a night foray. He with a sharp bronze was cutting young branches. He's doing this. And Achilles recalls this. The brilliant Achilles, who that time sold him as a slave in strong-founded Lemnos, carrying him there by ship, the son of Jason paid for him. From there, a guest and a friend who paid a great price redeemed him and sent him to shining Arisbe. From there, he went back home. Um, and now he's appearing again, like a ghost, down below. Can this be? Here's a strange thing that my eyes look on. Now the great-hearted Trojans, even those I've killed already, will stand and rise up again out of the gloom and the darkness. It's like um, a ghost is coming back to haunt him. He can't make sense of it. Um, on page, the next page, 420, about line 80. Um, Lycan, or, um, Lycan says, my release was ransom three times as great, and this is the twelfth dawn since I came back to Ilium. After much suffering, now again cursed destiny has put me in your hands, and I think it must be hated by Zeus the father, who's given me once more to you. So both of them are facing this strange thing. Lycan appeals to his sense of pity at the bottom of the page. Achilles says, poor fool, no longer speak to me of ransom. This issue of ransoming again, here it is. Don't ask me again. He says, Patroclus died, I'm going to die, and I'm a greater man than you. Um, accept your death. Um, about line 100. Now there's um, not one who can escape death if the gods send him against my hands in our front Ilium, not one of all the Trojans, and beyond others the children of Priam. So friend, you die also. Why all this clamor about it? Patroclus is dead, I'm gonna die. He kills him, and there's this wonderful image um, down below. And a fish will break a rippling shutter water on the dark water as he rises to feed upon the shining fat of Lycaon. Die on all till we come to the city of sacred Ilion. You in flight and I killing you from behind and there will not be any rescue for you or your silvery world strong running river for all the numbers of bulls you dedicate to it. 
pay for the death of Patroclus. Now stop for a second. Why does Homer insert this here? Achilles is going to push to the Trojan walls right after this, and he's going to encounter Hector, and the two of them are going to fight, and that will be the, the major battle, again, of the Iliad. Um, why this episode with Lycaon? Remember, Achilles captured him once and ransomed him, and he was ransomed several times before he got back to Priam. Any thoughts about why he would put this scene here? I guess the question to ask now then is, does, does Troy, so one of the things we're learning here is the inevitability of death, how a person meets his death. We're gonna see um, Hector meeting it in what to me is a shameful way in a minute. If we, I'm not sure that we're gonna get there tonight, but Hector's last stand will be, I don't wanna, I'm gonna wait. Anyway, it, it'll be the last major battle. So the question is, how do people meet death? Is there a difference between the way in which those in the West meet death from those in the East. It seems to me what Homer's showing us here is this quality of enabling. That Priam has gotten his sons out of trouble again and again and again. And you remember in the very beginning when I read the two embassies that when Antenor stepped forward and said to Paris, give the woman up, the, the world will come to an end. Um, Prime said, no, um, let the let, he sounds like a holy man, let the gods decide between us. And the war goes on, and Trojans are gonna, his, he's gonna grieve. The last major scene in the book is Priam bringing ransom for Hector's body, and he grieves, he weeps over the death of his son. Um, Yeah. Um, but then at the end, um, he does accept ransom to give Hector's body back. But I, to me, I think it was more out of the father and the son's honor. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we're going to look at that because it's a. I, I want to wait on that because it's, it's we're going to look at that closely. But just keep in mind, too, that Prime's going to ransom because. That's the way things, remember, that's how the honor code for both civilizations works. Um, but one of the interesting things we're gonna see um, is that during the chariot or the um, funeral games, Achilles is gonna bring out all of his booty and give it away. Um, and I wanna wait on that because it's, we're not gonna have time, I'm gonna stop in a minute, but just to look ahead to, to the things that we have to look at to finish this work, Achilles is gonna give all that away um, and he's going to, interesting, he's going to settle a quarrel that very much resembles the quarrel that opened the book. So I'm going to go through this next week. Remember, so the book started with a ransoming and a quarrel, right? 
the, um, the priestess of Apollo came to ransom his daughter, who was refused, rejected, and a quarrel broke out concerning the women. The end of the book um, takes the form of um, a quarrel that's settled. And Achilles settles it by giving things away and a ransoming. So everything that started the book is now reversed. And so we have to, again, ask this question, what is it in this book that's caused this turn? And you know that I've been suggesting that something new is entering the world here um, in what happens between Achilles and the gods. Um, when when um, Priam is gathering all of his booty up to take to uh, um, Achilles to get him back. Um, where is, sorry. When I'll bring, oh, here, it's on page 42. Um, this is book 24, about line 255. He's gathering the booty to take to Achilles, and he knows it has to be a great amount because Achilles has every reason not to give the body back. And he's scolding his servants because they're not doing exactly what he wants them to do. And he says, make haste, wicked children, my disgraces. I wish, here's a tyrant king. I mean, the, however else we see Priam, he has all the marks of a tyrant king and an enabler of, of his sons. Ah, me, for my evil destiny, I have had the noblest of sons in Troy, but I say not one of them is left to me. Mester, like a god, Troilus, whose delight was in horses, and Hector, who was a god among men, for he did not seem like one who was child of a mortal man, but of a god. And one of the things that we see in Priam is this, I, I hate using these colloquial, but it's... Um, Absolute, or power corrupts absolute power, that we're watching a, um, a tribal dynasty destroyed, be destroyed from inside. That war went on for nine and a half years. It's, it's because of something happening in Achilles that finally it's brought to an end. But we're watching these great Trojans, Troy or Hector, he's just named some of them, um, some of these great Trojans who died. So what we're seeing in this book is the very best of the East. Hector is the greatest and Achilles, the very best of the West. And it's important for us to get clear on what the difference is because the whole way they stand in the world in their understanding of themselves, in their understanding of their communities and in their understanding of the gods affects everything they do. And what we're seeing in the West is Something new is emerging. It's changing the way people look at itself. One of the questions that I'm going to ask next week is, is this change that's occurring in Achilles anticipating Christ? Remember, he gains in strength when he accepts his own death. Once he does that, nobody can stop him. So I'd, I'd hope to finish tonight, but there's too much. I, well, next week, just to look ahead... I want to look at the, um, the funeral games. I want, to look at the war, I want to look at the battle between Hector and Achilles, the last great battle. 
I want to look at the funeral games. They're really important because watch the way Achilles runs those games and project in your imagination how they would have been run if, if Agamemnon, the king, had run them. Because you'll see Achilles doing something that I don't think Achilles or Agamemnon could ever do. And Agamemnon's the ruler. So something new is entering this, this, this force. And so um, the battle between Achilles and Hector, the funeral games, and then I want, I want to look at that scene between Priam and Achilles, where the father comes to ransom his son. And it's tearful. They weep together. These are men who are ready to kill each other 24 hours earlier, and now they're clasping each other and weeping. And there'll be a dark moment in that exchange, and I want to look at it. And that'll, that'll do it. So I want to look at those three things, and then we'll start the Odyssey. Okay? But the question that I want, just to keep in mind, is there some way in which Achilles is anticipating Christ? Is there something Homer's seen that other people don't see? Okay? 